Dupree Scoval, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I'm glad to do this. This is going to be exciting, just the two fun. of us. All right, tell me, where were we today? So welcome to San Antonio. San Antonio. Lone Star State. Lone Star State. Happy to have you here. Um, so this property my dad acquired from a family called the Rogers Wiseman family, which was a working cattle ranch. Okay. Uh, now it's about 300 acres, but it started around 3,000. And um, over time, we've developed this resort. This resort actually opened in 1993, 500 keys. It now sits, as I mentioned, on 300 acres. You got 27 holes of golf. You got a, a 20 room spa that's 15,000 square feet. You got a five acre water park. You got about 100,000 square feet of meeting space um, and a lot of room to grow. We kind of look at this as a, a rare opportunity to take an asset that we've had for this long to reinvent it, which is the process we're in now. Thank you. And you know, we were, I was at uh, Broadmoor, um, a couple of weeks ago and you kind of stand in a resort like that and the history and appeal that it has and while it may be unfair for us to say hey we can be there someday um, that is part of the I think the vision we strive for to say these you can't build you can't build these anymore no. you can't you can't recreate these the way they were done and so our view is that there is there is a Broadmoor type of uh, I think league that we we want to play in long term that's part of the investment we're making today so You'll get to see it. We'll walk around and see some of that too. So. Yeah, I can't wait to take walk. So Hi Hyatt Regency Hill Country, mm -hmm. San Antonio. You got it. And yeah, gorgeous property, everybody. 300 acres golf course resort in San Antonio. The whole thing. Yeah, who knew? The whole thing. Who knew the Woodbine crew would be doing resorts? In Texas. In go. Texas. <laughs> yeah. That's why you got the hat. You yeah, got the right yeah, job. Okay, so this place is great. And I love all the decorations and all the, what, what, what room are we in? We're in the Choctaw, Choctaw Suite. Choctaw Suite. Choctaw, the Choctaw Nation is our partner in the Hyatt Hill Country, which was, um, uh, there's, there's a huge value alignment with them. Uh, that was a new partnership that we created this year. They're the largest investor and in that will really kind of fund the lion's share of the renovation as this. So it's really, a lot of times you capitalize these with family offices uh, because you have a longer term view. We were going the institutional route. It made a lot more sense for us just because the alignment of values and, and, and really more long-term thinking to, to partner with family offices. And the Talk to Nation kind of acts a bit like that. They, they act like a family office and have a long-term view. And so we've been pleased to partner with them. And as a part of that, we took one of our suites and made it the Choctaw Suite. So everything you see here, the art, the, the diamonds, which is part of their culture, the tri everything has something to do with, with the Choctaws. I mean, it's super cool. That's fine. It's, it's great. Come back and stay with your family. Uh, I will. And the bathroom. They renovated the bathroom you grew up in as <laughs> yeah, a kid. That's right. <laughs> Dangerous place. <laughs> Slipping on a marble. It's, uh, yes. And bubbles. Um, okay, let's go. So uh, I want to dive into who Dupree is and sure. how we got here and sure. who Woodbine and the family. Sure. But just curious, you partner with family offices. Are you guys a family office or are you we private are family equity? Office. We're a fi family office. I mean, a lot of times what we have is we, have, we invest on behalf of our balance sheet. We have a fund uh, platform where mm -hmm. we invest on behalf of other investors. And then we acquire assets one-off where we partner with institutional uh, capital partners like Castle Lake or like Starwood or like USAA, groups like that. Uh, where they'll be our capital behind certain assets that we intend to buy, renovate, reposition, and sell, uh, and or develop and sell. We kind of part, we really play in both segments, both development and acquisition. Yeah. So. And we're uh, based in Dallas? Based in Dallas, Texas. That's kind of home for us. We're a hub and spoke model. So we're a small company. We're 30 people. Really, uh, our view is 
when my when my brother and I joined the business, he joined a little bit before I did. He joined in 2008. Does that make him in charge? Interesting time. Is he older? Yeah, he's two years older. He's two years. He, he, both of us think we're in charge, so it works. <laughs> so it works fine. I know the feeling. Yeah. So, but he joined two years before I did. I came around 2010, uh, 2011, and really the way that we, what we witnessed in that period of time was my dad, who is a remarkable guy, but um, you know we had been going through the Great Recession, and my dad is loyal to a to a fault, if that's such a thing. Uh, and he would have continued to fund the business and to have his team together probably as long as it would have made sense. And really the team kind of came to him and said, hey, you can't keep doing this. Yeah. Like, let's do an early retirement thing, let's restructure it. And so we went from about 55 people to around 30. And when my brother and I began to take uh, more of an active role in the business, that was our intent was, hey, we're gonna be, we're gonna be marathon, not sprint. Um, to staff up and staff down and, and as big developments come and go, we just felt like we'll do the number of deals we need to do to support the overhead we have. And that's kind of how we've reverse engineered the company. And, uh, and that's been a successful strategy for us. So we'll generally do around two or three select service developments a year. We'll usually do one or two full service development deals a year, ground up stuff. Yeah. And then we'll do one or two acquisitions a year. Around that pace, at least in hospitality, is really what our rhythm is. I love that. Yeah. So how many do we have now total? 22 assets today. Great. Uh, trades in and out. Portfolio is probably, I don't know, I would imagine around two and a half billion. But we'll, we'll sell down with only the best brokers. Of course. Of course. Right. Uh, we'll sell down some assets. We'll put some assets in as we develop them. And we kind of have three different buckets. We have legacy buckets, which we say, like Hyde Hill Country, which you say, we don't sell. We just, we just don't sell. We have some in our fund bucket, which is usually around a 10-year hold because you're really trying to create you're trying to create a vehicle that can weather yep. some kind of systemic change or two or three in, in the case of the last 10 years. And then we have an opportunistic bu bucket, which is really we buy, we sell, we build, we stabilize, we sell, or sometimes we'll sell right at CFO. And that, that, we, that development portfolio is usually more of our select service platform. And are, and are most of your partners, LPs, uh, partners, sounds like you only have a handful. Like it's not retail. It's family offices, people that have been with you a long time. That's right. That's You're not right. going back out. We, we, we don't have a huge, yeah. um, we don't have a huge base of investors in, in, like you would think about in a, in a retail scenario where right. you have, you know, two or three hundred guys. Um, our total investor pool is probably sub 75. Yeah. Uh, and it's just family offices who are kind of using that two to 10 million, some as much as 75. Um, and a handful of guys that, that I went to school with where I'm like, hey, you can't get rid let of. me just help you not put your money in a t-shirt shop and just put it here. <laughs> so, so there's some mix and match there. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we always say the type and types of investors that we want are folks that are like-minded or like-hearted. If, if I can check the box on those two, we're usually doing okay. And are you, I'm thinking your long range view of all this, right? And even your core values, which we can get to. Sure. But I'm guessing that's because you're a generational company, right? Your father started this, help me. My dad started the company and it was a partnership with the Hunt family. Uh, and that was uh, 50 years ago, actually. 50 years ago, October, um, was was when the company was started. And, and it's a kind of interesting story, but Mr. Hunt, Go, we got time. Was, Mr. Hunt was listening, um, he, he was, he's driving, 
home one day. He li- he went to SMU and he's listening on on the radio. Do I know Mr. Hunt? Is this like a famous Ray Hunt? Ray Hunt. Ray Hunt. Thank Thank you. Um, the yeah, whose whose dad was the richest man in the world at one time. He was the good, Jeff Bezos. Good partner to have. Yeah, this is a good partner to have. More more importantly, because they're they're good people. Okay, that one, uh, yeah, that but one. we'll get there. But so Mr. Hunt's listening to a game uh, on the radio as he drives who knows what, you know, home from SMU to his house. And it was Texas playing Texas Tech in Austin. And my dad was the quarterback. And it was kind of this crazy game. Uh, My dad has 150 yards passing, 150 yards running, 150 yards running. And he kind of just takes over the game. Uh, And he instantly becomes a Red Raider legend. And Ray is listening to it and he goes, I need to meet this This guy. guy. Uh, Now... He didn't, I mean, more so just remembers that yeah. story. A couple years later, my dad graduates, goes straight to Harvard, comes back to Dallas. He's working for Arthur Anderson. And he yeah. and Ray meet because Ray was involved with the same civic thing that my dad was involved in. And Ray goes, I remember you. And kind of t- recalls mm-hmm. this story. And they hit it off. And really, Ray, I always describe it as jockey betting. Uh, that was kind of his words. Is he looked at my dad and said, I need somebody like him to run the real estate por- portfolio that he had. And Mr. Hunt was really focused on the oil and gas company because he had to be. His dad had passed away, and now he was thrust into a position where he was running that company. And so he comes to my dad, and he says, hey, I need you to come run my real estate company. My dad is saying, hey, look, I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a real estate guy. I'm not Trammell Crow. I'm not Bill Duvall. I'm, not, I'm none of these things. I'm just, a, I'm just an accountant. Um, and Ray says, you're my guy, and basically recruits him to come run this company. And my dad wisely said a handful of things. He's like, look, I'll come over. He said, but, but I, I need to be the guy in control. I, I need to pick the mascot, the team colors, the fight song, the whole thing. Um, and I don't want this to be a place where you can put the hunts that you don't want in your business yeah, okay. in mine. He didn't say anything about his kids, yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of we snuck in later. But that was really how that partnership formed. And, and as the story goes, it was really built on a foundation of trust. And that was kind of what was what I think has made it such an enduring relationship that now has gone from G1 to G2. Uh, Ray's son and son-in-law who now run the company, who are, who are still our partners, um, have been just a, it's kind of just been a, a really important foundational bedrock for Woodbine for years to come. So they, they have been our longest standing, or were our first partner, still are our partners. And if my dad and our family has anything to do with it, every deal we do will always start with them. And, and they'll have, the, if, if they say they didn't want to do it for some reason, which hadn't happened in 50 years, but if it happened, then at least they, they would always have the first look. No, they need you. And that reminds, you know, I think what we watch, and we're in generational families, but even without families, there's always sort of the people with the money, right, typically older, who need to match up with the younger person with the energy and the vision sure. and the desire. And so you can, once you find that match, whether it's father and son or whether it's just different partnerships with sure. different skill sets and sure. they bring different things to the table, yeah. right? It's just so rare that you have the types of values that transition from Mr. Hunt, Ray Hunt, down to a second generation and then beyond that. I mean, even the, the folks that are in the business now that are under Chris Kleinert and Hunter Hunt that are part of the family, I mean, it, it, it's, just a, it's, just a different, it's just a different family. Money can do hard things. Yes. It, can, it can have a lot of adverse effects, obviously, as you've seen many times, but but there's just a foundational um, kind of humility about that family uh, that has been such an important part of our growth and such a big part of you know who we are. In fact, really, before my brother got and I got involved, 
our values were really the hunt values. It was almost like whatever they are, we are. Uh, once we became a little more independent, we acquired the, the uh, company from the hunts. They, become lim they became limited partners and not partners in the, in the operating business, and we owned it outright. We felt it was, it was time to kind of reestablish our own values and create that type of culture. And, and naturally, that takes after the personality of my father. But, but in many ways, you'll see how it lines up really closely with who the hunts are. Uh, did you buy out the hunts? We did. did. You, who bought them out? You and King or My brother dad? and I did. My brother did and I did. Did you also buy so your father out? It was a systematic approach that took around probably about six years. But we had a CFO, a guy named Greg Mowat, who really helped us create the architecture for what allowed us to buy both the hunts out, which was just before the oil and gas crisis of kind of 2015. And then fast forward, uh, right in the middle of COVID is when we brought, bought my father out, which was supposed to happen actually in 19 got delayed for a handful of reasons. We ended up acquiring his interest in 2020. And that was really where, um, that, that was kind of the last hurdle, if you will, and culmination of us acquiring the company. From Did dad make you a good deal? Uh, yeah, on the real estate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course it was, that was thanks to COVID. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, my, I, my dad was kind of always like, I don't know why you guys are doing this. Uh, you know, why are you doing this? From his perspective, that was much more about uh, you know, we don't need to do a transaction. For my brother and I, we felt like, you know, we always we laugh about, we say, you know, we were, a lot of folks are born on third base and th yeah, they think they hit a yeah. triple. In our case, we feel like we know we were born on third base, but we don't want that given to us. And so for my brother and I, it was important for us to be able to transact with my dad, put a value on it, put a system in place and a structure in place would allow us to acquire it over time. So I think it's as much about pride of ownership um, and, and, and really, um, you know, that, that intrinsic value of knowing that what, was, what had a value we, were, we acquired and now we're carrying it forward. And so there's a, there's a bit of an obligation, I think, on our part yeah. to where we feel like we almost owe it to my dad to, to, to carry on his legacy. And I don't think King or I, my brother King, or I feel like, it's important that this is a 200-year company, that then our kids and their kids yeah. join it. Um, but we do feel like we're stewards of at least the next 50 years. And our call and our, and our mission is to be able to say, hey, we've got a job to finish, which is like making sure his legacy endures at least part of it. And so that's kind of how we look at the world. Did you work with your dad? I did. You bet. I mean, greatest privilege I think I yeah. could probably ever have. I mean, yeah, I agree. I'm sure you could say the same. Yeah. Um, and that's for, you know, my, what, I, what I think is so interesting about my dad uh, is he, he had, speaking of Ray Hunt's humility, that's why he and Mr. Hunt were so, had such just kind of a common bond. But my dad has just got this, this humility about him that's really special. I mean, he's the kind of guy that, that we're really, just never feels like he's the most important guy in the room. He's always the guy that takes, if you're getting in the car, he's getting in the back seat. If, if you're walking through a door, he's opening the door for you. If you're walking through a kitchen, he's talking to every person along the way. He's just got that kind of heart about him. And so when it came to Woodbine, he had the same mentality where for my brother and I coming in, first of all, he wanted to know, do I have two capable kids who can actually do something uh -huh. here? So it was important that we went and got experience somewhere else and then came into the business. And then when we, were, when we were in the business, what he wanted to see, and he didn't necessarily make this explicit, it was just up to us to prove it, is are they the kind of kids who can earn the respect of the team around them? And so for my brother and I, it was, it was kind of like a Mike Leach, 
football days type of thing right, where you're there. the first one there and you're the last one to leave. And as a short white walk-on, like that's what you're gonna have to do. And so when we got to Woodbine, it was the same mentality. And I saw my brother do that. And so kind of following his lead there, I think the team saw, hey, these two are pace setters. Like they're gonna run really hard, uh, but they care more about the business than, than probably anyone else. And so I think that's what's led to some of the, the team that we've been able to put together and, that we, and some of the growth and success that we've had since then. All right, so you mentioned football, so now we're going to go there. Let's have right. a little fun. Sure. Okay, everyone in the family played football? So you, you high school, then college, Texas Man. Tech, because everyone goes to Texas Tech. No, same elementary school, oh. same middle school, same Forgot high that. school. You're right. Same college. Like, literally, I had the Wait, same Wait, be more, be clear. Same as in you, your brother, and my your dad. father. My two brothers above me and my dad. <laughs> same. Literally the same. Elementary school. Middle school, middle school high school, high school, school college. college. That's right. You guys should get out more. I know, it's a Seriously. problem. Seriously. It's a big so world. I had the out same there. science teacher as my dad in high school. I had the same music teacher as he had in elementary <sighs> school. I know, it's, it's like wild. But anyway, that's like okay. a long career. So, sh so anyway, when we, when we go to, yeah, when we get to the, the tech, my dad had been a quarterback, as I mentioned. Thank you. Um, under a guy named J.T. King, my bro oldest brother Field, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he played under a guy named Spike Dykes. Okay. And then my brother King played two years under Spike Dykes, two years under Leach. I came in Spike's last year and then had Leach's first four years. Okay. So you want to talk about like story after story after story. Is Mike Leach a genius or nuts? Well, both. Yeah. Hundred percent both. Okay. Like as okay. as most of those folks are. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, he, he was a remarkable coach. I mean, I think we were in the, the number one offense in the nation, like our first, my first four years there. Uh -huh. And that was Cliff and B.J. Simmons, Cliff Kingsbury and B.J. Simmons yep. were the quarterbacks at that time. But it was, a, it was a remarkable new thing that just defenses were, were not yeah. able to comprehend. And so for somebody like me. Yeah, help me, it was a spread offense. It was yeah. like no huddle, it, it was. It was the air raid. It was air the, it was the original air, air, air raid. raid. And so, I mean, you're throwing around. <laughs> Five six hundred yards a game. I mean, it was crazy, and so you know, for for kids who who you know, I mean, and you're running those receiver cores, and I was a receiver, and I was a special teams guy, so that was kind of how I got on the field. But it was a lot of fun. But but more interesting was the locker room speeches, the oh, sure. halftime stuff. Oh, give the, me one good one, just one nugget. Uh, this is this is one of my favorites. So we're playing we're playing A and M, and this, this rant was so good. And he used this many times before, but I think it was halftime of the A&M game. We were down. We actually came back, came back and won because Wes Welker, my roommate, runs oh, back yeah. a punt return to win the game. Wes. But at halftime, he is like, I mean, he is letting us have it. And so he starts, I mean, him letting us have it is like a minimum of 30 to 40 F-bombs. So you have to like piece the story together yeah, in yeah. between the F-bombs. Yeah. But he is, he is going off about the core of cadets. At, at, so somehow we get on a tirade, because if it's not pirates, it's something else. Yeah, thank you. And he's pirates. like, I don't understand why these Boy Scouts get to pretend like they're soldiers. They get to carry swords. This is ridiculous. <laughs> 
the pirates should be the ones that carry those swords. We should have a pirate corps of cadets at the Texas Tech. I'm, and of course, we're all going, what are we What are you talking, talking about? about right now? Like, we got a second half to play. Yeah, like time is ticking, bro. We got to get so out there. Should we a game plan? Uh, no. But that was, I don't know, maybe it worked because all of a sudden we come out and we, <laughs> we win the ball. Pirates with swords. He was, an, he was a, he's a crazy personality, really, really obviously visionary <laughs> guy. But, you know, so I got a lot of stories like that playing for him. Uh, I, we should talk about Leech stories all day. I'm sure King's got some good of a story. Yeah, he does have good ones. Okay, so get back to the boring stuff. So you graduate, yeah. and then what? Now you spent time in LA. Did you go straight to LA? I, no, I didn't. I was at Trammell Crow uh, oh, yeah. after yeah, yeah. undergrad. Trammell Crow in Dallas for about five years. Then I went to Stanford. Don't ask me how. I don't. I think I'm legitimate admissions mistake. I'm almost certain. Got me. That's like a true grad school. True statement. Totally. Grad school there, I think I'm going to come back to Dallas. Uh, in between my first and second year of grad school, I'd kind of made the decision to come work for Woodbine, okay. which was n not expected. Not, yeah. It was just really more king paved the way. And so I felt like that was something that made sense. And so rather than move back to Dallas, I had this idea to say, hey, we need to grow Woodbine's footprint nationally beyond just the kind of Southwest territory that we'd been playing ball in. And so the, you know, when, it's like when you volunteer, yeah. you know, you're not volunteering somewhere else. You, you're, you're really volunteer, volunteering yourself, at least unbeknownst to me, I was. And so it's like, well, if we want to create that footprint out there, then you, you got to do it. And yeah. so I moved to L.A. and we opened an office there, which really kind of helped us start thinking nationally. Um, and that, that was important because we went from two states um, over the next four or five years with my brother and I to, I think, uh, I think it was 16 states was really the growth pattern that we had. Uh, and that was in large part because now we were developing select service, yep. as we talked about earlier, which was a really important part of our growth. Uh, and so now, now we, were, we were really kind of branching out. And it was new capital partners, it was geographic diversification, and we were kind of known as Hyatt guys. And yep. so now we were Hyatt, we were Hilton, we were Marriott, we were pretty evenly distributed. And so that was a real important strategic shift for us to begin to think differently as a company and think bigger. Who, um, and how long did you spend in LA? 10 years. 10. Wow. Yeah, 10 years, which, uh, so we moved back. I was to, guessing five to seven. It yeah, we moved back in 19, back to we Dallas, which was kind of the last step to be yeah. able to kind of co consummate the purchase. And so that was kind of how we, Buy that, that was out. the last step. You and King take yep. over and go. That's right. I love it. That's right. All right, how, what's it like working with your brother? Uh, I mean, honestly, King and I are unique. I mean, you know King. Yes. There, there, we are totally different. <laughs> I mean, King could, in an interview, if there, was a, if there was a third chair, King could sit there and he'd be just fine not saying a word. <laughs> like, not even saying, and he wouldn't, like, no, he's not self-conscious Is that how you ended it. up here? Is that you <laughs> they, have, they, the they two talkers right. of the family? That might be right. So exactly. like, put those two there. <laughs> they'll, they'll talk all <laughs> Turn their Turn on a mic. But, they'll go forever. But, and, but the thing about King is that he's comfortable in that. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't feel like, he doesn't feel like I'm talking too much. Well, maybe he does but he, he, his role is like, hey, I'm, I'm, I talk when I feel like I yeah. need to. And that's about the way it works. And he's, the, the thing is, is at the core of our connectivity is there is a, there's a common goal, which is mainly revolves around our values, but it's kind of where our North Star is, where we're going. And that alignment does not waver. Um, and so we, we don't think about you make more than I do, I should have more of this partnership. It, that, we, we saw that a long time ago. We said this will always be 50-50 and we're moving. And so I think once you kind of take away usually what is the piece that can create the most conflict in a family, you take that one element out and I think you, you, you know, 
th that lightning rod gone, now it's a lot easier to run yeah. together. But King and I have totally different skill sets. Um, I mean, I, he, he is very thorough, uh, and I'm not. I'd prefer to move fast and quick, and he'd Sounds prefer right. not to. Uh, I, I, I really like um, the growth idea, and King is like slow growth. And so it, it, you would think it would create conflict, but it's really more we usually figure out a way to find common ground between each other. And so it ends up being a scenario where we, are, we seem to just be really good partners, and that's kind of the way that it works. Uh, for us, and so the the a lot a lot of brothers are different. A lot you know, there's a lot of times there's conflict and competition, and there's a lot of different things about that. But for King and I, it uh, it just seems to work. We've kind of been able to do this now for you know over 10 years, and hopefully it's something that we both see doing much longer. You know, and so it's been a it's been a pretty good partnership for us both. I think. How, how what's the oldest child? Either you Field and King? oldest. So Field's, three Field's boys. Your oldest brother. Field's the orthopedic surgeon. Surgeon. Eight Thank years you. older than me. Thank you. He's in Dallas doing Cowboys, uh, Carroll Clinic, doing all this other stuff. That's kind of his good for him. His path, um, and we always joke because, in some ways, you know we're there is a third of some of the assets that he's the beneficiary of. And I'm like, you got the best deal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, we're working for free for you and on those types of things. But, uh, but that's, that's also one of the things. And what's the there. next generation look like? So I've Your got kids, four. King kids, Field King kids. has four. Field has three, all kind of around-ish the same age. Um, you, you know, kind of 13, 14, or like 14, 15 down. Okay. Um, so my oldest is 12. King's oldest is 10, I think. Um, and so, so we don't think, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, we don't think a lot yet. about like, hey, yeah, this one's going to be, that, that one might be this one. Um, I, I think for us, it's, we, <laughs> let's, like, let's batten down the hatches and like keep steering the ship in the right direction, and then we'll worry about that later. All right, so let's talk about the direction. What, what direction we headed with the company? Yeah, sure. Given where we are in the world today. We, we, have, we have a pretty key, or I guess we have a pretty core North Star for us. And, and like a lot of companies, I think when you're, when you're a generational business is um, we, we really do want to think long term. Yeah. And so th there, there are certain figures in three different buckets that we have. And it's just a discipline that we created about eight or nine years ago where number one, we say, how do we allow the, the, the fees that we generate offset our overhead? Okay. So we're not using free cash flow from assets to be able to do it. That's right. the first discipline that we kind of focus on. Second one is we say, what are the different types of values that we want to have in the three buckets that I mentioned earlier? The legacy assets, the ones that we will never sell. Yep. Like what is, we have a certain number that we say we're going to get to that North Star. Is this one of those? This is, it is. Yeah. So we have a 10-year horizon. We're five years in, and we're literally right at around 50 to 60% on all these goals. Okay. We have, this, we have our development bucket, which is shorter term, which we have a different number on. It's about yeah. half of what our legacy assets are. And then we have this intermediate 10-year asset class that we say, okay, how can we how can we achieve that number on those? So rather than getting in the numbers, that's kind of how we think about those three buckets. And then you have another part, which is saying we can't be wholly dependent on hospitality. Um, we've seen how challenging that is. Uh, we've been in that place for a long time. We feel like that's what we're really good at. But at the same time, we've got to be able to diversify into industrial, into land, into multifamily, into office. and so. We're willing to say, look, it's going to be hard. We're going to learn a few tougher lessons. We're going to try and partner more on those things so we're not paying the dumb tax. Yeah. Uh, but those are the types of things and efforts we've been making over the last five or six years to get ourselves into those new categories. And it's been, um, 
it's been not without its bumps and bruises because Office was first. Uh, but but again, I mean, I think we go, we look at it, and we go, look, we're we are in a marathon, not a sprint, and so we got to think about those things. We can't take these licks and go, well, it's not for us. We got to say, okay, well, what were the macro factors at play? Did we make the right decision at the time? Is the, what will we change about that investment process going forward? Those are the types of things that have kind of steered us. All right, let, let's pick on you now that you're an industry, all industry expert. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what, in which industry sure. you like better right this second going forward? Hospitality, oh, multi, industrial, land? I, I must be the dumbest guy on the planet because I, I, I believe in office in Texas in particular. I mean, I'm like, gonna, think about Texas. Get you an award. Right? Dumbest guy okay. on the planet. So, so yes. So, Texas, fastest growing okay. region in the country. 20 million people between Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio, which is where, where we sit, the Texas Triangle, which I think is so important. So in Texas, I think like 50 of the 60 mm -hmm. Fortune 500s are yeah. here in that, in that yeah. triangle. And so it's, a, it's kind of a remarkable growth story for Texas. And I think that net-net, you're gonna see more inflow of companies, even though you'll see companies downsize and shift and change the way you see office. I think you're going to see more of that because of how attractive the state is from an economic perspective. And so I don't think office goes away, I think it changes use. And we look at it and say, well, there's got to be a way to take hospitality into the office business. I don't need to go too far into it because I think we've tried that, I feel like we've, done some, we've seen some success in that. But if I had a whole host, if I had a bucket of money, I'd say, look, now would be the time I'd go buy office. Now secondly, I actually think as we were kind of talking about earlier, I think multifamily is interesting because it's such a development mindset that there's a lot of developers who had floating rent debt, who are now opening properties, who are coming to market with those things going, hey, we just need to get out from that. We just need to get our basis out or try to get a little bit of a win and sell it and then move on to the next one because their entire business Correct. model is predicated on, on the churn, on that construct, buy, you know, construct, build and sell. Um, and where we think, hey, there's, there's probably an opportunity there to be able to acquire in that space. So, I don't know. The, I also joke, it's like, I think we're like literally the last company on the planet to get into multifamily. Like, we, do, we just waited. We're like, nah, uh, now. 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 We are I, la we're the last one. Let's go. Listen, I think your theory is right, though. And it's a little bit of the hotel space, too. Yeah. But um, just not as, as obvious, right? Yeah. I mean, our hotel, your hotel developer, you built for yourself, not... Yeah merchant developer build to sell. Mm -hmm. There are those out there, but you're building for yourself. But I agree in the apartment world, in the multi-world, that's all they do. Yeah, we're building not and selling and building and, and selling. Now they're stuck. It. That's right. And we're not immune to it in the hotel space either, right? I mean, their assets are you're saying we are developing to yeah. sell and we're looking at that and we're going, okay, well, there's two ways to get there. Like either restructure the debt or you do the capital call. That's right. And so you kind of have to have the right kind of partners that'll say, all right, let's go. We're, we're going to saddle up and write the check. And we are just now, I don't know, what are, I don't know where we are. We're post-Labor Day 23, 2023, uh, and we're starting to see the distress coming. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see the capital calls. Yeah. We're starting to see that people just handing the keys back. Mm -hmm. The hope, oh, it's going to come. We're seeing a lot of office parks yeah. for the offices and back. And so the hotels mm -hmm. in that space, mm -hmm. and everyone's like, all right, time to move. Yeah. That, those dominoes are just starting to fall. Yeah, it feels like we're, we're right there. Yeah, I think so. So what do you think, the next, give me the next, I don't know, 12, 24 months in your brain. What's your crystal ball sell? Let's talk shop. We get better um, or worse? Well, so, I, all right, so, so our macro view, okay. two things. I think, um, so I, if, if, if the Fed stops 
which a lot of the inflation metrics are interesting right now and, and suggesting that we might be a place where they could stop raising rates. Most of the regional bankers that we talk to, which is really where we've kind of tried to tie our okay. horse to, if you will, hitch our wagon to, those guys will say, they'll say, look, I don't know that you're going to see a rate decline in the next 12 yeah, months. We agree with that. Most of those folks are saying, hey, that's probably like, that may be 18 to 24 months. Yeah. And so the reality is we've got to start looking at saying, well, what does our performance look like underwriting to an 8 9% you know, floating rate? So now to me that does two things though. That also puts a lender in a position where I don't think they have any more appetite to own an asset than they did in the middle of COVID. Right. So at that point, if you have, a, you have two parties, <laughs> right? One saying I can't fund, one saying I don't want to own it. You only have one option, that's to find the common ground and say, well, then how do we, how do we buy time? And so I, I think that's where we end up. I think there will be distress, but I don't think it will be near the magnitude that a lot of the guys are thinking. They're just going to go have a ton of money sitting around and go be able to transact. I well, think it's it never going to be. Is. Yeah. Well, at least that's right. It, it, it certainly hadn't been that way. So, so I think there's going to be kind of this slow drip. Um, and I think you're going to see more. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of workouts with lenders. I think there's going to be a really interesting place for Mez to come in and play. Yep. Bridge capital somehow kind of getting you from A to B. Um, and, and no one's immune to that. You're just, you're just not. Doesn't matter how big your balance sheet is. Doesn't matter. Like, there are, you get tired of capital calls at some point. So you got to figure out how to bridge it. Uh, how worried are you, speaking of capital calls, how worried about are you about capital calls for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very real issue. Yeah. Like, we look at it every day. Fortunately, the lion's share of our portfolio, portfolio is, is in really good shape, but there are always two or three always. assets where you're going, always. well, like we're now, I, I do think we've tried to be really strategic and we have the right partners who have long-term view. Like I was on the phone with one of our larger investors the other day and he's like, look, man, he's like, I'm, I'm the only guy that gets attached to a barrel of oil. He's like, I don't even want to sell that. He's like, and he, he kind of looks at me and, he, and again, one of our larger investors, and I'm kind of like, I'm sweating. He goes, he goes, who cares? Who cares we got a capital call? We didn't buy these things to be two-year guys. We bought them to be 10-year guys. And so when you do have your investors reassuring you with that type of confidence, you go, okay, like we, you're right. That was our vision in the beginning. Like, let's see if we can weather these storms and move through it. I think that, you have the right kind of investors. Yeah, and that's not perfectly, that's not a great, you know, not like that's 100% across yeah, yeah. the board because other investors would say, hey, like, why don't we just get our money yeah. out and let's just sell the asset if we can get our money back and then let us redeploy that in the way that we think is fair. And so there's a, there's a careful balance of thinking about the fiduciary responsibility that's required there versus a capital call. And so we, we, got, we got to be careful there on, on different assets, but, but it's definitely one of those things where we're looking at it now going, that's a, that's, a very real, that's a very real course we have to chart over the course of the next 12 months, which is going to be, is going to be a series of capital calls, not on all assets, but a couple of them we're going to have to. We see it, that's how we see it. We still see today is better than tomorrow. And I've been saying that for 18 months or so now, so we still keep saying that. Um, so I think the pain is, still coming yeah. and I think it is going to come and it's going to be in the form of capital calls and yeah. real tough decisions. Yeah. What do we hang on to and what do we not? Um, and maybe you're hanging on to Texas and you're getting rid of Portland. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we are, we're, the thing is like, that's why, you know, we're, we're working on a few BOVs with you guys that that's part of the process is thinking, okay, well, not, not what's the value. What is the, what can we transact? Correct. Like what is the actual number we can sell at? Which is funny, you'd think those are the same, but they rarely yeah. are. It, so we, we're looking at that, those numbers going, hey, if we can actually get our bogey here, 
And, and because we've owned it a certain period of time and have benefited from cash flow and can sell the asset, you kind of start to go, well, how much risk do we have to take to get a higher number? Yeah. And, and then you kind of start evaluating that going, well, that's going to take three years. Well, then we're looking at a renovation. So there's a lot of those factors, I think, now that we're, we're really trying to think hard about. There's going to be appropriate time to sell on certain assets that may not have been part of our business plan to begin with. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see what I call the BOV sort of season, yeah. right? What's my property worth? The good news is I would argue we were doing BOVs, let's call it 12 months ago, fourth quarter last year, uh, trying to sell assets. And the, the gap was so wide that yeah. they were never going to trade. So mm -hmm. those, everything just stayed. Mm -hmm. Today, no one yells at us, not really for the, <laughs> our opinion of value. Right. They get it. And then they make the educated decision, do we want to sell or do we not? Sure. Before it was an argument. Oh, you're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. The value's worth a lot, much more than you think. Right. Okay, fine. And then it wasn't. You couldn't get right. there. And now it's okay. We understand values are off a bit. Yep. Let's just figure out if we want to make that tough decision or if we want to hold it and what our cost to hold is. Yeah. And, and when does the sell. asset have some unique position where it actually, right. there is perceived value? There, yes. it, 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 a certain submarket, a That's certain right. demand driver, exactly. something that creates a, a bit of a halo or moat around it that you can still get the value you need. And, that's and we're seeing that. Is. We've always been kind of street corner market, right? Industry. Mm -hmm. uh, the people in it really know that. Yeah. The ones higher up don't just think, oh, it's right. just hospitality. No, no, no. no. Yeah. This street corner can do really well. Yeah. That street corner can do not as well. Mm -hmm. that's right. We're seeing that in all kinds of markets. Yep. Midtown Atlanta is doing great. Buckhead is not. I know. God, it kills me, by the way. Correct. Because of our asset there, I'm like, how's Buckhead not performing? I got to uh, believe it comes back. Different thing. We'll blame that on say, Sarah. We'll blame that on Sarah. Um, okay. So, uh, all right. We've talked all of that. So, we're wrapping up now. We're, yep. getting, we're getting quite t towards the end. But now I need to hear the values. I need to hear the... Sure. To pre-Scoval, <laughs> life, work, <laughs> values. Well, yeah, sure. Um, so, there, there's a story behind it. A guy... Uh, so we were, we separated from Hunt. We had acquired the business from them. They were now uh, capital partners, not okay. owners in the, in the operating company. And as I mentioned, we had their system of values, which were probably 10 or 12 things. It was too much. I was kind of like, I don't get it. I don't know where this comes from. It just what didn't connect with me. And so we were going through this process. And you know, I hate that thing where you're sitting in a room and you got sticky notes. And you're doing, it's oh, like, yeah. feels so scripted to me. Um, but a, a, there was a gal that worked for us. Uh, her name was Cammie Hardy, and she happened to come across this uh, strength finder test that my dad did years before, and she sends it to me. And she says, hey, I mean, just totally random. She said, I thought you might find it of, of interest. And so I kind of started looking at it, and it was like that moment. I was like, boom, those are our values, which made total sense to me because it is the personality of my dad. And so much of what we wanted to do is honor him in the process that's important to us. Um, and the legacy that I feel like that he's created uh, and the way that he's done it, we think the right way. And so when I started going through those without, without kind of tying them perfectly, that was where we came up with this reach analogy. Yeah. And so for us, it's relationships are the R. Um, and that we just kind of say, look, relationships outside of our company are just as important as the ones inside our company. And we don't think our relationships are just our capital partners. And we don't think they're just you know, our lenders. We think they're the brokers we work with. We're, we think they're the contractors we work with. We think they're the subcontractors that, contractors that we work with. And I think that mentality doesn't really exist in our industry. It's saying, hey, T, you work for me. And your job is to get that value. And if you don't perform, you don't, like, I, 
There's not much else to talk about. In our view, it's like, what do I need to do to help you get that value? If I need to show up at every single tour and, and tour the asset with you, I will do it. That, that's where I think the partnership yeah. aspect of relationship makes sense. The E is for effort, and we just say, look, we, we grew up around entitlement, but we are not entitled. <laughs> uh, and, and that's kind of that third base metaphor that I was mentioning to you earlier. And we feel like we've got a blue collar work ethic. We've just got a chip on our shoulder. We've got something to prove and we're not taking anything for granted. And we feel like everybody in our company needs to have that same DNA. It's just because we're in a big, pretty office building and we're on the top floor and this, that and the other, uh, it doesn't change anything about who we are. We ought to be grinders, and that's kind of what our mentality is. The A is for accountability, and that's just similar to building off of what I just mentioned. It's saying my job is to make sure that everybody has the same view of Woodbine. And for somebody who's not upholding these five values, I got to hold them accountable. And if I'm not holding them accountable, I'm, I'm not doing a disservice, not only a disservice to them, but to every other person on our team. I'm not, actually, I'm not actually doing my part, which is kind of what my job is, is what I believe is the shepherd of our, of our company. The C is conviction. We, have a, we, we say we've got a set of values that are uncompromising. And I'm, I'm not very bashful about this. I mean, I feel like we're, we're, our, our values are built on our faith. And there's, not, there's no two ways about it. So when folks are coming in and they're interviewing with Woodbine, I'm pretty forward about this and say, hey, look, these are biblical values that we believe. This is how we treat people. This is how we engage. This is how we do business. And I want them to be able to hear that from me so they can't say later on, well, nobody told me. I want to be able to say, no, like this is who we are. Like our, our vision is not for ourselves. This will kind of get to the last one, the H, is, is humility, which uh, I was speaking to a, um, a group we have at Texas Tech called the Scoville Business Leadership Program. And it's kind of like the top 1% of the business school uh, that applies to do this program. And a, and a kid asked me, he's like, well, well, and a kid's not fair, a student, an unbelievably accomplished student who's a concert cellist, asked me, he said, well, what, what is the, how does ego get in the way? And I kind of walked him through this idea of humility is that, look, at Woodbine, we don't feel like we're doing it for ourselves. We're not doing it to make ourselves more wealthy or even our employees. Now we do it because we feel like we have a call to shepherd and take care of the families that, that are devoting their lives to our company. That's for sure a big part of it. But at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's not about having a bigger house or a bigger boat or a bigger ranch or something yeah. else. It's saying like our goal, our mission, our values are say, look, we're, we're doing this for Christ and his kingdom. And to the extent that we can use our God-given gifts to be able to do what we do really well and do that in a, in, a, in a really professional manner and hopefully find some success at it, like, praise God, that's awesome. So from that, that's, that's kind of when we, so when I talk, talk about reach very quickly, that's kind of how we came up with those five and that's really how it reflects who we are. And we talk about that all the time. And we reemphasize that in all our corporate meetings and all our times together, because that's really what we want our team to see the lens through. And so the team that we've got now um, that, that we've kind of rebuilt and has a tenure, I think average tenure is probably 15 or 16 years, including some three or four younger guys that have come on with us. Um, like that's the team that we've said, these folks get it. They understand it. They want, they'll, they'll be with us long term. And of course, they're not with you long term unless you're taking care of them either. And so we've got part of that bargain uphold on our end. And so it's been, a, it's been a really neat process, I think, for my brother and I to be able to retool Woodbine and take it from what my dad had created 
and then really shift that in, in a new direction, which is, you know, I mean, I've watched you guys do the same thing, where it's, it's you've got this thing that your dad created, well, but, but that, that legacy, those coattails only work for so long. Then it's saying, well, how do I retool it? And how do we now take what we've been given and say, to whom much is given, much is required. Now let's turn the dials and let's push that thing like really, really fast forward. So that's a little bit who we are and what we're doing. Uh, I love it. Listen, Dupree, you and your brother and your father and your family, you guys are great people. Well, you're great leaders. You. You're really good leaders. I wish you all the best in the company, but most importantly, you're great human beings. Thank you. So thank you for sitting down with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for letting me barge in. <laughs> yeah, let's go walk. Uh, let's go walk. We'll let's get go it see on. a hotel. We'll see you. Bring these guys with us. Thanks, guys. <laughs>